0: Christianity, the faith of Christianity, is a faith that works. It works in the typical sense of the word, in that the Christian faith is accompanied by works. It is accompanied by works of righteousness. And that righteousness is a display of the new life that has been granted to us in Christ. R.C. Sproul said it this way, true faith that connects us to Christ always manifests itself in works. James says in chapter one, of his will, of the will of God, we have been brought forth by the word of truth. And by that, James is calling to mind the teaching of Jesus in John chapter three concerning the new birth, what we refer to as being born again. We have been born again, meaning we have a qualitatively different and new life in us. The life that we have in us, with all of its accompanying thoughts, desires, attitudes, and all of those things which lead to certain kinds of actions, this new life is qualitatively different and better than the old life. So it can be rightly said that if there is no difference in your life after you profess faith in Christ— then you do not have the life. If there's no accompanying work, change of life, change of the trajectory and course of your life, change of action stemming from a new inner change, then you cannot rightly say that you are born again. In other words, to use a familiar biblical analogy, the fruit that is born in your life comes from the root of your life. If the root of your life is fleshly, natural, of the world, then you will live in a way that bears fruit, which is fleshly and of the world. Conversely, if the root of your life is the new birth, the birth from above, the birth that God gives when He grants you new life through faith in Christ, then the fruits will be different. It'll be new, it'll be heavenly, it'll be holy. That doesn't mean it will be perfect on this side of eternity. That does mean that, again, it will be qualitatively different and better than the old life. That is a biblical fact. That is what God does when he brings us forth by the word of truth. He gives new life. Again, accompanying this new life is a new attitude, a new way of processing things around us. Before coming to faith in Christ, you would have had a certain worldview A view of the world, a way in which you understood life, the grid through which you processed the events of life, along with accompanying responses to it, desires and inclinations. In Christ, you have a different worldview. You have what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.16, the mind of Christ. And therefore, you ought to think differently. This is a worldview that processes the events of life, again, along with its accompanying responses, desires, and inclinations through the grid of the mind of Christ, through his thought process. The new life gives us a worldview that processes the events of life through an awareness of God's sovereign plan and purposes. That means that both the good things and the bad things that happen, both the joys and the sufferings, are considered in the context of God's sovereign plan for his people, not apart from it. Again, perhaps we don't do this perfectly. Perhaps it takes us a while and we need some reminders from time to time. But the overall viewpoint, your overall worldview, the way you think about the world if you have this new life, starts first not with your own life, your own perspective, with a, an earthly perspective, a worldly perspective, how it feels to you, how you, your desires and your, your, your perspective about life, but rather it starts with who Jesus is. It starts with who God is. It starts with his sovereignty over all things. If it is true that the letter of James is intended to encourage us to live out our faith in all areas of life, to live out our faith through obedience, that's what I offered last week by way of the big idea for James, then this first chapter of James underscores what is perhaps the most valuable resource available for the Christian life. And the most valuable resource available for the Christian life is steadfastness, or in other words, endurance. That is, in fact, much of the message of chapter 1. Believers need endurance in order to live faithfully before God. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 25, James talks about us having a persisting faith. And generally, how we can persist in the faith. In verses 26 and 27, he talks about us having a pure faith. We need to have a persistent and pure faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll get into details as we go through, but that's the big idea of chapter one. And as I said last week, the rest of the letter of James goes into greater detail as to what it looks like in practical terms to live out our persistent and pure faith before God. Well, again, this morning, we'll start to walk through chapter one of James. I'll read the entire chapter for us this morning just for context, and then we'll focus in on just a few verses James chapter 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God promises to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let us pray. Lord, as we come before your word, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things, for your word is indeed wonderful. I pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight this morning. Oh, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, we need a persistent faith, a steadfast faith an enduring faith that persists in doing the will of God. The writer of Hebrews said it this way. You have need of Endurance. So that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what was promised. That's Hebrews chapter 10. For every true believer, that verse should resonate loudly. The accompanying new life gives us again a new outlook and a new desire. Our greatest desire ought to be to hear at the end of our lives, well done, good and faithful slave from our master, Jesus. Thus, endurance steadfastness in the faith the ability to live out our faith with endurance ought to be the desire of every believer there is much in this life much in this fallen world that can cause us to stumble difficult circumstances difficult people our own wavering faith and foolish stumbling into sin the people in James's day were dealing with all kinds of things we need endurance Just as in the Old Testament, wisdom was strongly urged upon the youth, as it says in Proverbs 4, get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight or understanding. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. So for the children of God in our day, it may rightly be said, in all you're getting, get endurance to accompany your faith. Prize endurance highly and she will exalt you. The question is how? How can we have endurance? How can we be steadfast in our faith in the Lord Jesus and living out our faith in the Lord Jesus? How does that work? What does that look like? What do we need to have endurance? Again, chapter one, verses two through 25, James focuses on a number of things that we need to have as believers in order to have a persistent and enduring kind of faith. He says in chapter one, verses two through four, that we gain endurance by pondering. He says in chapter Uh, In verses 5 through 8, we gain endurance by praying. He says in verses 9 through 18, we gain endurance by praising. In verses 19 and 20, we gain endurance by patience. And in verses 21 through 25, we gain endurance by practice. And we won't get through all of that this morning, but that's just kind of a broad outline of this section. We're going to look at that first point this morning in verses 2 through 4, which again I've called that we gain endurance by pondering, and you'll understand what I mean in just a second. Take a look again at verses 2 through 4. There James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The first word is probably the most significant word in these verses. It's translated here as count. It is otherwise translated in other versions as consider. The word itself means to engage in an intellectual process, to think, to consider, to regard. James is saying, in other words, Engage your mind to think about the various kinds of trials that you meet in this way. Think of them as a source of joy. I remember R.C. Sproul referencing a sermon that he heard once. And the title was simply, Christians Think. Think. It was both intended as an imperative as well as an indicative. Christians think, meaning Christians ought to think. There's a command for Christians to use their minds to think. But Christians think is also a statement of fact. Christians, by nature, are thinkers. There's a caricature of Christianity in the world today. You read it in stories. You see it in Hollywood. But that caricature often paints Christians as mindless drones, We, quote, have faith and therefore have no need for reason or serious considerations of facts or relevant information for life. We just, again, quote, have faith and don't worry about thinking about things. This first verse in James flies in the face of that gross misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. James says, count it all joy. Think about it this way. Like in the phrase, my brothers, is one of James's favorite designation for Christians in the letter. And his point is clear. Christians think. We are thinkers. The faith that we have is a reasonable faith. Therefore, we must exercise reason as a part of being in the faith. As those who have been changed, again, as those who have been, as James will say later in this chapter, brought forth by the word of truth, we have been given this new birth through faith in the word of God. Our Lord, our God, expects us to think differently in light of that new birth. And again, in particular, he wants us to think differently about our trials. He says, count it all joy other versions translated as pure joy. There's a way to think about our trials such that we can rejoice over them. Now maybe we also need to rethink our understanding of joy. Someone wants to distinguish joy from happiness by saying that happiness comes from happenings, but joy comes from Jesus. I think that's an apt description. It is a description because joy doesn't come from events. It doesn't come as a direct cause from favorable circumstances. Even though the world may argue otherwise, joy is a peculiarly Christian virtue. And that because joy comes from God. It comes from the Lord Jesus. Joy is a part of the fruit of the spirit of God. We read about that in Galatians 5. Joy is a gift from God. It has a divine source. It is not common in the world of men. Therefore, the things that pertain to joy are things that pertain to God. The work of God, the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. To be a Christian is to think of joy in terms of the work of God. Therefore, when James calls us to count it all joy, to consider it pure joy, to think of it, trials, as a joyful event, he does so on the basis of this underlying truth. We can rejoice even when circumstances are not favorable because joy is rooted in the person of God and his work in our lives. Not in the event itself. James says that trial, various trials, can be a source of joy. I'll explain why in just a minute. That word trials there can mean a number of different things. Context often determines it. It can refer to trials or testing. It is translated in different ways. Or it can refer to temptations. The difference between the two words is really a matter of outcome in the context. Testing is intended to determine the nature of something. Temptation is intended to provoke or entice to sin. Again, context determines. I like the translation in the ESV of testing because it fits the context better. James is not here talking about something that is, it is intended to entice you to sin. He's talking about anything, various kinds of events that happen in our life to uncover or unveil the nature of our faith, to test or try the nature of our faith. He even says that in the next verse. He follows up by saying that these are things that test your faith. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Certainly trials may lead to temptation. He'll talk about that also in this chapter. But the point here is that tests come, And as we think about encountering those tests, those trials, we should think about them with joy. I want you to think about that for just a bit more. The world says, and this is increasingly becoming more a matter of settled fact, that anything that makes you uncomfortable, anything that makes you uneasy, anything that offends you, anything that troubles is inherently evil and should be avoided at all costs. I mean, we have this whole term now called cancel culture to describe the swiftness with which people, products, and companies are canceled if they do something to offend or not to appease the masses. If someone, anyone, is made uncomfortable, then the culprit is canceled. And the one who is offended is often applauded and affirmed for being offended. We have an aversion to anything that is hard for us, anything that is difficult for us. We try to avoid at all costs. We want life to be easy, free-flowing. The church is even influenced by this. We want church on our terms. We want for it to be easy, comfortable for us. If it's not easy and comfortable comfortable for us, then we have to go somewhere else, somewhere else where all of our felt needs are met immediately. We don't want hardship. We don't want the difficulty of messy relationships and sacrificial service. When we see ministry needs, instead of looking to meet those ministry needs, working hard to develop a ministry to meet that need, not just for yourself but for others, we want for someone else to do it. We'll pack our bags and go elsewhere. And when trials come, we hold on to the hope that this too shall pass. We want, with all of our might, just to get past it because it's so difficult. In the letter of James, we're being called to something more. We're being called to think differently about our trials, beloved. The fact that trials come should be a source of joy for Christians, not because of the trial itself, but because of what God is going to do in the trial. You may say, well, that's just crazy. How can anyone do that? How can anyone rejoice when they encounter trials, things that test our faith? We're not robots. The people in James's day certainly understood trials. Many of them were poor and dealt with the difficulties of poverty. As you read through the letter, you get the sense that they were even being taken advantage of by the rich. They were being oppressed by those who were rich around them. They were even tempted to treat the rich better when they came into the synagogue. We see that in chapter 2, and James has to warn them against that. Certainly when trials come to us, especially those really difficult trials, a sick or terminally ill loved one, those times when our own frail, weak bodies fail, relationship issues, whether between spouses, between parents and children, or extended family, the loss of a job, financial hardships, any or all of those things can at times become so overwhelming. We become inundated with fear, anxiety, depression, guilt, anger, and the list goes on. We experience those things as a result of certain trials or seasons of difficulty in our lives. So it's natural to ask the question James, what do you mean consider it pure joy? I want to say before we move on that those feelings that we have when we encounter various kinds of trials are not necessarily evil, they're simply feelings. If you're having outright evil thoughts, obviously that's wrong. Things contrary to the will of God, wanting revenge or seeking to sin in some way, shape or form obviously that wrong, that's wrong. But the normal course of human experience and the feelings that we have when we encounter difficulty is not inherently evil or wrong. That's normal for us. We've touched on this as we've gone through the Psalms. There's a whole huge host of human emotions and reaction to various experiences that we read in the Psalms, and God doesn't reject his people for that. The issue biblically is not that we have emotional responses, but rather what we do with them. And the reality is that how we think about our trials will determine what we do with those emotions and ultimately how we respond to those trials. So again, what does he mean to consider it pure joy? Well, he doesn't mean, certainly, to think of every terrible thing that happens to you as a good thing. That's not his point. But again, he does mean to think of the fact that you are encountering a trial as a joyful thing because it is evidence of God's work in your life. Look at verse number two. He says, For you know, count it all joy my brothers when you meet various kinds of trials for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness he says you know again we need to think differently as believers when it comes to our trials when we go through trials we need to consciously consider our situation and think of it in the context of God's sovereign work in our lives That requires effort. It requires energy. It requires intentionality. You know, James says, you know this is true, in other words. You don't have to wonder about it. You know that something greater is happening in your life. Your trial is not arbitrary. It's not for nothing. I think that was the question in the book of Job. What was the reason for his suffering? Was his suffering for nothing? Job's friends thought that the reason for his suffering was due to some sin. Job's contention was that no, there was no particular sin that he was aware of that would have led God to chasten him. Job's frustration began to boil over as his friends constantly prodded him to admit some sin or error that simply wasn't there. Job even began to question God precisely because his suffering was not as a result of some sin. He said, I don't know what this is for. It doesn't make sense to me. We don't find out until the end. Of Job that though Job was blameless not sinless but blameless living a righteous life before God there was still something that Job could learn there was something that his faith was lacking and it was something that he could only have learned by going through the trials that he went through again Deacon Steve read Job chapter 42 earlier it says there, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He says in verse 3, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? That's a, that's a quote from something God said earlier. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard about you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes. Job was blameless before the Lord. He was living an upright life before the Lord, but he was not thinking rightly about the Lord in the midst of his trials. I love that verse that he quotes there Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? And again, he's quoting from God. God says just a couple of chapters earlier, slightly differently translated. Who is this who darkens counsel by words of knowledge? Sometimes that's how we think when we are in the throes of trial. We don't know what God is doing and aren't thinking about what God is doing. And yet we wax eloquent about what God is doing. And we try to pretend that we understand it in full. And really all we're doing is darkening counsel without knowledge. We're opening our mouths and speaking about things that we really don't understand. In the end, Job had to admit, after all that was said and done, again, I had heard about you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He knew the Lord as a believer, yet he had not known the Lord experientially. He had not experienced the sovereign greatness and goodness of the Lord in the context of suffering. And so Job grew through that experience of suffering. James is saying, Look, think about this. God is at work in your life through the suffering, and that is a good thing. We don't have to wonder if this trial is for nothing. We don't have to wonder if the almighty chance is in control, or if the other person who seems to be pulling the strings will have their day of triumph over us. We don't have to wonder if something good will come out of this trial, because we already know that it will. Look again at the text. Again, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The word translated steadfastness in the ESV means the capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty. I like that definition. It's also why I like the translation of the word endurance better. Bearing up under the weight of difficulty, the ability to endure a heavy burden on your shoulder, that, James says, is what the testing of your faith produces. Trials are things that test our faith by their very nature. Trials are heavy burdens laid on our shoulders of faith in order to test it, to show what kind of faith it is. Just as Job, we say we believe in Christ, we say that we believe in God, we have heard about him by the hearing of the ear, but in some respects we have not yet seen him. And we don't until the testing of our faith. I think it was Mike Tyson who said one time that everyone before they steps into the ring, has a game plan about how they're going to go about their boxing match. Everyone has a game plan until you get punched in the mouth. Because before that, it's all academic. But when you get punched in the mouth, then it becomes real. Likewise, you don't get to flex your faith muscles until they're tested. And our faith must be tested because again that's the only thing that leads to endurance and this way the testing of our faith is more akin to exercise in a gym because that endurance builds over time you run on a treadmill in order to build up certain muscles to increase your lung capacity to strengthen your heart to be able to run at that speed and for that distance consistently or you start out lifting weights maybe you start by lifting five pounds but after a while, five pounds no longer does it for you. You say, I have to move up to 10 pounds and then 15. And it's the adding of the weight over time that strengthens your muscles to handle more. As I said earlier, if there's one commodity that the Christian needs, perhaps more than any other when it comes to their faith, it is endurance. And again, Jez, James says that the way to get that endurance is by the testing of your faith. Again, it's so easy to encounter a trial and I want to get out of it right away. Lord, take this from me. Lord, help this to pass. For so many, for sure, there are different kinds of trials that we encounter that may, rightly make you feel like all you want to do is get away. From a Christian worldview perspective, we understand that trials will come in this life. We live in a fallen world. We cannot go through this life but through difficulty. Jesus even said that. And John, in this life, you will have tribulation. Contrary to the thought of the world, we do not deserve better. The universe doesn't owe us anything. Tribulation will come. The fact that we know tribulation will come Should motivate us instead of thinking, God, help me to stay away from trials because we know they're going to come. We should be thinking, God, help me to be able to endure trials until you bring me home. And with that in mind, James says that if we want a faith that endures, our faith must be tested, it must be tried, it must be challenged. We must add weight to our workout regimen. We must add distance to our running schedule in order to develop that kind of enduring faith. Peter says it this way in First Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says that you have faith, you have been given this new birth, and God is keeping you through that faith for the final salvation. And then he says, in this you greatly rejoice. He says, the reason why you're being grieved by various trials is so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He adds that note in there about gold that perishes. And he says, gold is valuable, but your faith is more valuable. And if we test and try gold with fire, what are we going to test and try your faith with? We're going to test and try your faith with fire, but of a different sort. And your faith is much more important than gold. I like this quote from an author who was commenting on that passage, the difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith, heating it in the crucible of suffering so that impurities might be refined away and so that it might become pure and valuable before the Lord. The testing of faith here then is not intended to determine whether a person has faith or not. It is intended to purify a faith that already exists. God is trying to make your faith better. Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. That was Peter. This is Paul. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we have been saved. We look forward to the glory of God in the end. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says, just as we rejoice in the salvation we have in Christ, in the forgiveness of sins, in the hope of glory, we can also rejoice today in our suffering." Because we know that God is preparing us for something greater. And don't miss that there is an end in view in the theology of suffering in the New Testament. No trial will go on forever. Again, both Peter and Paul in these passages and in their theology as a whole are clear that our focus ought to be on what comes in the end. The refining of our faith is so important because in the end, when we face the judgment of God, so long as we have displayed an enduring faith, we will not, in Paul's words, we will not be put to shame. But our faith will, in Peter's words, be for the praise and glory and honor of Jesus at his revelation. When we stand before Jesus with a faith that is purified by the trials that we endured and suffered, by, when we stand before him with that enduring faith in the end, Jesus will be all the more glorified in us. Not because we lived an easy life, but because in spite of the fact that it wasn't an easy life, Our faith persisted, and he's glorified by that. And one author says this way, implicit in what James says is a conviction that the suffering of believers is always under the providential control of a God who wants only the best for his people. God is at work in our lives through our trials. Do you believe that? What trials are you going through today? What difficulties are you suffering? One of my pastors used to say, you're always on your way into a trial, in the midst of the trial, or on your way out of a trial. Where are you in that process? And do you believe that your sovereign heavenly father knows what is best and is doing what is best for you, even in the midst of that trial? I call this planned pain. I've used this analogy before, but a parent takes their little ones to the doctor's offices. If there's a suspicion of some sickness or illness, and sometimes their little ones are subjected to, to, to what can only be described probably in their minds as torture, you know, a needle draw, some sort of test, being stuck in some machine where something's scanning or some light's blinking or what have you, and you can't sit there and you can't hold them and you can't rescue them from that. You have to allow them to undergo The test, whatever the test is, however painful it may be in the moment, because you know that something good is going to come as a result of it. Our Heavenly Father is no less concerned for us. He's concerned with our greater good. And while that greater good may not be readily apparent to us as we're going through that trial, it may not be on our mind, it is on his mind. He's always working towards our greater good. Again, Romans chapter 8 God works all things together for good to those who love him. That is a fact. James underscores this truth in verse 4. He says, Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The greater good that God is working is our maturity in the faith. None of us are born again with a fully mature and complete faith. We're all a work in progress. The greater good in the mind of God is not our temporary comfort. It's not our temporary happiness in life. The greater good in the mind of God is not that everything goes well for us today, He has the riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ in view in the future. That will be poured out on us in Christ in the future. Today, he's preparing us for that day. The greater good today is our maturing in the faith. Again, it is, as James says in verse 4, being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word for perfect suggests that which has come to its logical end. It has reached its fulfillment. It is fully grown. It is mature. The idea of that which is complete is a word which can be translated as whole or undamaged, intact, meeting all expectations. I think of the Hebrew word shalom. We usually translate that as peace, but the concrete idea of shalom is wholeness, lacking in nothing. The greater good that God has in mind for us is a faith that is full grown and mature. It is a faith that is whole. It is a faith which is lacking nothing. That is his desire for you. That is the logical end of your new birth. It is a faith that does not continue to function at the level of a child, but one which comes to maturity. One which is whole in every way, lacking in nothing. Our God desires that for you. He desires that for me. Yes, we all come to Christ with a childlike faith, but that faith ought to grow. If we've gone throughout our Christian life with the same childlike faith, never having grown in depth or breadth, and something has gone terribly wrong. We ought to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3. We ought to be growing in the faith and our ability to live out our faith in ever-increasing ways. Again, this is not perfection. This is progression of life. James says the only way for us to reach that level of maturity is by gaining steadfastness or endurance. And the only way to gain endurance comes through trials. Again, do you believe this? you believe that God has your greater good in mind and that your greater good sometimes requires that you go through difficulty and suffering that you may gain greater endurance? James says this is the way we must think about our trials. As beloved children of God, we must think this way about our trials that our heavenly father brings into our lives. Someone said it this way once. Obedience is a true test of sonship. It may rightly be said that you learn obedience through suffering. That is what it was said of Jesus in Hebrews. He also, the writer of Hebrews also says later on in an exhortation for those who are coming after the perfect son of God and who may be tempted to fall away. He says this in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. This is probably the most important point in these few verses. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, he says, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Look to Jesus. Consider him that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. You have need of endurance. Consider Jesus. Jesus came into the world in service to his Father, and for the joy that was set before him, he endured a criminal's cross, a cross which he did not deserve. A cross that he was put on by those whom he created and whose lives, again, he sustains by the word of his power. The text says that he, the sinless son of God, despised the shame of the cross and endured hostility from sinners in order to accomplish the mission that God, his father, had given him as an obedient son. He endured all of that. And if he did, the author and perfecter of our faith, if he did, then so should we. Trials are not the absence of God's good pleasure in our lives. Any more than the cross was the absence of the pleasure of God with his perfect son, Jesus. One author said it this way. The teaching of Jesus, the teaching on trials in the Christian life, like that found in Hebrews 12, focuses on trials as proving our parent-child relationship with God and as the discipline necessary for walking in the way of faith. The true pattern of service that must be kept in view by faith is the service of Jesus himself. And he quotes Hebrews 12, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He says he was the true son and was tested. Thus, every servant of Christ should bear up under trial as proving of his or her identity as a true child of God. End quote. When the fire is at its hottest or you are at your lowest, fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him. The promise of Isaiah still rings true. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Back to James again, he says in verse four, let endurance have its perfect work. Endurance must have its way. Endurance is the way to maturity. Endurance at work in your life is the way to have a full-grown, fully developed, fully operating faith. You, Christian, need to let that happen. You need to respond to the trials in your life in such a way that endurance will be able to do its work in your life. And letting endurance have its perfect work starts with the way you think about your trials. You should rejoice when trials come your way, just as a runner sees the beauty of another hill to conquer. You, Christian, must see your trials as the means to an end, that you would have greater endurance and that your faith would become complete, lacking in nothing, and that your faith at the end of your life would be for the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you suffer, hold on to these truths. This trial is going to lead to a faith that endures. This trial is evidence that God is at work to build my faith. This trial is intended to produce endurance, and that will lead to spiritual maturity. This trial, this endurance, this spiritually mature, fully grown faith is what I need in order to bring glory to my Savior, Jesus. Perhaps you haven't responded that way to the trials that you're enduring today perhaps you haven't responded in faith thinking with joy that your heavenly father has taken notice of you and is actively working on your behalf to strengthen your faith i remember someone telling me something along those lines years ago when we were in a particularly d- difficult season of life that god thought enough of you to give you these trials and i thought i wish he hadn't at the time <laughs> But that is true that your heavenly father knows what you need. And sometimes you need trial, difficulty, testing in order to strengthen your faith. Perhaps you think you can never respond that way. Remember, your ability to respond in faith and with joy to trials is not ultimately up to you, but rather it is a product of the new life, the new mind, the new eyes that God has granted us in Christ. Yes, it is difficult, but yes, the grace of God is with you. And the one who began a good work in you, Paul says in Philippians 1, will be faithful to complete it. Next week, as we continue in this series, we'll look at James's next exhortation that we are to persist by praying. As we seek to hold on to these truths that we've learned so far in the passage, to think differently about our trials and how God is working, we must pray. We must pray and we must pray in faith. Our final hymn this morning is called Afflicted Saints to Christ Draw Near. Those who are afflicted should not fall away, run away, drift away. We should rather draw near to receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need, both for his glory and our good. Let us pray. Father, we come before you And we pray this morning for your grace as we continue to seek to exercise our faith over this next week. We pray that you'd help us to think on these truths that we've learned. That our trials are not punishment. But that they are, in fact, in the course of your sovereignty, intended to strengthen our faith. They're intended to help produce endurance in us. And that endurance is a crucial piece in a spiritually mature faith. And that is what we need, both for our good and for your glory. Father, help us to hold on to these truths, even as we go through the most difficult seasons of our lives. We pray that for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.